0: Welcome to Science and Wisdom Live, where scientists and meditators meet.
1: Dr. Hassenkamp, it's a pleasure to have you here for this short interview with you in advance of our Science and Wisdom Live meeting that we're having on November 11. Thanks for making the time.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
1: So today, it's a a little bit more personal, which I hope is okay with you. Uh, So (laughs) so people get to know you as a person. I know you also have your own podcast, so probably used to people having a lot of questions for you. So I'm excited to get to ask you a few today.
0: Yeah, it'd be great.
1: Okay. So we wanted to start out by asking you about your childhood. If you could tell us a little bit about some significant event in your own childhood that helped you become who you are today.
0: I really appreciate this question. It was it was interesting to reflect on. It's hard to think of a specific event, but I was raised uh, in the Christian tradition and, you know, at having kind of a scientific mind. And as I got more and more into studying science and the, the way that Christianity, you know, was taught to me in the tradition that I was raised in was a pretty kind of fundamentalist uh, evangelical slant. So there were a lot of tensions between my more logical and scientific mind and, and the way that uh, religion was, was taught to me. So... But at the same time, it was foundational. The religion was foundational to, you know, who I was and how I viewed the world. So having that tension kind of throughout growing up, and then just trying to kind of hold both things that didn't fit together. And then in college, uh, you know, just slowly more and more questions were were coming up for me. And at some point, um, I think I was trying to take a A biological anthropology course, and it was full, so I had to take the cultural anthropology course. It's funny how these little things, you know, end up making a difference. We read um, this little book called *The Serpent and the Rainbow*, which was like a anthropological study of Voodoo culture in Haiti. Anyway, for whatever reason, at that moment, like it, it just shifted my total my total understanding of how a belief system fits in society and like serves certain roles in society for groups of people, and saw how all religions, in some ways you know, do the same thing for people. And like my, that was kind of the last straw for, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back for my own belief system um, that I had managed to hold on to with Christianity. So that just kind of crumbled, which was, you know, fairly traumatic for me, because it was what I had built my whole life on. But at the same time, it, you know, picking up the pieces, and it kind of sent me on this path then of exploring other spiritual traditions and other ways of knowing and, integrating science and, you know, ended up practicing yoga and then meditation and then Buddhism. And like, you know, it's been totally formative, uh, I think, in where I've ended up at least so far. But yeah, just and also bringing science into it and being able to uh, science is such a tradition of being able to question everything and kind of continually revising itself, which I really appreciate. But at the same time, then I feel like science doesn't have all the answers. So I I continue to hold that spiritual interest and, you know, mode of investigation. So in some way, I'm still bringing them together, mm. I guess.
1: And what, what would you say are the, the, the positive sides of the Christianity you practiced when you were young um, that influenced you?
0: Oh, wow. Well, I think having, you know, such a strong faith in... A loving God and you know a meaning system underlying everything those things can be so helpful for human development and transformation, developing that kind of trust, I think,
1: yeah, so having some sense of a a larger picture and purpose to your life in yeah. the universe, yeah absolutely, and then what gives you what gives you that today you know now as a, in your life?
0: I think I'm still working it out you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I haven't. I don't ascribe now to any one particular religion. I would say Buddhism is like the the most home base for me. But I take a lot of truths and wisdom from a lot of different traditions, as well as a lot of groundedness in nature and biology. Like I'm such a biologist at heart and understanding life systems. And so yeah, some amalgamation of all those things
1: <laughs> so, well, to well to get more down to earth in in your everyday life today what gives you the most satisfaction do you think you know feeling satisfaction in your life and benefiting others
0: yeah i think that i really enjoy when I'm able to clearly communicate something that's complicated or nuanced, whether that's in a teach it like a lecture based teaching setting or in a group discussion, or you know, I try to do some of that on the podcast or through writing. Um, writing is actually probably my most comfortable way of doing that, but I get a lot of satisfaction and joy of feeling that I'm able to actually transfer information in a way that helps build knowledge for other people and can shed light on things that might be confusing. And it does for me as well. And then there's kind of, you know, hopefully a feedback cycle that continues my own understanding too. So I think that's what I get some of the most satisfaction out of in different aspects of my work and and life.
1: Hmm, That's very nice. I I remember that from your bio too, you said that you like to take complex ideas and communicate them in a way that people can understand how I try. do you, try <laughs> try <laughs> I like, I like yeah. to try <clears throat> yeah, how, how do I you do, do I think that's because especially in science you know jargon in Buddhism too and, and, and in yeah. religion in general jargon yeah. is such a big part and it's important to be because it gives you precision you know within a world yeah. system like with cultural psychology you're talking about is that kind of jargon is very important but yeah. how do you do how, how are some of the ways you've been effective do you think
0: well I think that Yeah, jargon's a big problem. And so you need to be able to get beyond it. And it's usually not that hard to get beyond it. You just first have to be aware of where it's coming in. You know, when you when you're talking within people, like among people in your own field, it's just like this quick shorthand language, and it's really useful. But you realize, you know, if you listen as an outsider perspective, you have no idea what people are talking about. So explaining terms, breaking them down, you know, trying to avoid them and just speak conceptually about it. I think also, I don't really know how to describe how this plays out. But there's an assumption to have about your audience that that they can understand, like the depth of this nuance. It's like, People can totally get this, it, and it's often. Avo- I think the media often avoids going to that depth, and that that's really kind of what's driven this interest for me. Is being more and more just engaged in reading and accessing media and seeing how oversimplified, or especially with science, jumping to conclusions or hype or that kind of thing. And I think they avoid nuance. It seems because they assume people don't want to read that they just want like the quick soundbite story but I don't think that's true you know in my experience people actually are really hungry for depth and they totally can hold you know conflicting things or the idea that well we don't really know this yet like this is where we need to learn more and so just being honest about that and speaking you know like you're speaking to your grandmother is is often a, a good thing to remember of just like you can talk about this kind of stuff in simple ways without all these complex words and so that's what I try to do but so res- <laughs> I don't know if it always comes across
1: yeah so re- so respecting your audience just respecting their intelligence their ability to yeah. understand things that's right absolutely nice. so do you, you are a meditator yourself
0: I am yeah my practice waxes and wanes but <laughs> <laughs> I have practiced yeah. for many years
1: I wanted to ask you about um how science Affects your meditative practice in any way? Mm-hmm. If it, if it does, and the other direction too, how meditation affects you know your work as a scientist? Does that go both ways, or is it more one direction? Or-
0: yeah, that is a really good question. I think my f- my first thought is that it is much more one direction in that my practice informs the science. I, I no longer work in the lab or do research actively, but when I was, it was a huge. You know, I was studying meditation at the end of my research career, and. I don't know how you would really do that without actually having the subjective experience of practice yourself, particularly what I was doing was trying to parse out differences between focused attention and mind wandering. And that completely emerged from my own experience of those mental states, right, which is, you know, what all meditators are familiar with pretty quickly. So then trying to map that into neuroimaging or looking at brain states that are associated with those, that was fully informed by uh, my own experience of practice. And I think most contemplative researchers would agree that it's a necessary part of doing this work. In terms of the other direction, I don't find that knowing about the science informs my own personal when I'm actually sitting or doing the practice as much, because I think what I derive the most weight out of is, is my own experience. But stepping back and kind of wh- how I think about the practice and what it's doing and understand it, that I think I derive a lot of insights from knowing at least the little bit that we do know about how brains can change or minds can change, how that works. You know, I originally was kind of more on the cellular neuroscience side. So I think about literally how the circuits are forming and how those can change with repeated experience. Recently, I've really been kind of moved a lot by just the idea of energy conservation in a biological system and how much brains are constrained by energy constraints. But because of that, you know, we're wired to do things in the most efficient possible way on a cellular level. And so that says a lot about why we have habits and, you know, find it so hard to break out of these habitual patterns that we've made because they're actually the energetically easiest thing for our brains to do. <laughs> and so it speaks to the role of a lot of the things around practice, right? Like sitting still and having a quietness or going on retreat in particular, you're cutting out a lot of the energy suck of your life, right? Like you're you're just eliminating so many things that you're spending energy doing. I, I just view it as like you're you're accessing all this extra energy and that can be used for transformation, you know, mental and physical transformation. It's two sides of the same coin. So
1: Hmm. Oh, that's That's really, I hadn't heard anybody put it that way before that, you know, when you go on retreat, it's not just a mental piece, but it's literally that your brain cells have more energy to draw on. (laughs)
0: Literally, I mean, that's in the last couple of years, I've really been struck by that. It's just like a very basic biological thing that's happening.
1: That seems very wise, you know, I think we've all had that experience, especially if you have a very intellectually rigorous job, you can feel completely exhausted just like thinking all day trying to solve a problem, right? So the next question is, uh, you're obviously an expert here, but why is this important to have a dialogue between science and contemplative traditions?
0: There are lots of different ways, I think, to come at that question. But the way I view it is really, we're trying to understand the human mind. And to me, these are two different and extremely complementary ways of doing that. And actually, I think they inform each other in important ways. Science was developed really to study the physical material world, physical objects, and it's excellent for that. But I think when you try to study the mind, there's a whole <laughs> there's a whole other level that's added in, which is the subjective experience that even you as a researcher have, you know, like you can't get outside of that. And it becomes you know, your object of study is also the tool you're using to study it. So you need other ways of understanding that introspection and contemplation and all the tools that have been developed through those traditions are an essential way of trying to get the information about the subjective side of it. You can't just look from the outside at someone's behavior or body state and know anything about their internal state. The two traditions are just, they're so complementary in terms of understanding the mind
1: yeah i like what you said you can't tell from outside you know i don't know if you ever saw this movie um werner herzog made a documentary about the dalai lama teaching the kala chakra initiation
0: may have that sounds familiar
1: in the end of that he kind of gave up werner herzog because he just said like i can't film that he's like This is happening inside of the Dalai Lama's mind and these other people's minds. Like he kind of gave up at the end of the movie and said, I wish I could capture this somehow. So,
0: yeah.
1: And this is why you do these dialogues, though, right? Is to somehow bring that out so that we can understand.
0: Yeah. And the other thing I I wanted to just say about that is, you know, when I think about the dialogue between science and and contemplative tradition, I take a really broad definition of science. And, you know, as we do at Mind and Life, it's not just scientific research, but social science, anthropology type of stuff, religious studies, philosophy, all kinds of humanities. So all these research traditions, you know, that have their own ways of exploring um, the human experience, I think, they all have important perspectives to bring.
1: You've both, um, you know, watched, organized, and participated in a lot of these dialogues. Can you can you think of one moment that really impacted you? You know, a memory of a particular exchange between science and the contemplative tradition that has stuck with you and has meaning.
0: I wasn't present for this, but it's kind of a story from within the field—a conversation between Tanya Singer, a researcher in Germany, who uh, was doing neuroscience and empathy and these kinds of prosocial behaviors—and she was connected with Mathieu Ricard, the French Buddhist monk. So through, I think, Mind and Life dialogues, early days, and then he, you know, started working with her on the research side, and um, she was originally studying empathy in her lab in the early aughts, and knowing that he was, you know, this kind of master of. compassion, compassion, practice. She thought that he would be a great person to study in the scanner to help her figure out her parameters. She had him in the scanner and asked him to, you know, do these practices that he would do. And she had recently identified this network in the brain that she was associating with empathy for pain, uh, which she thought of as, you know, what happens in compassion states. And so she asked him to do these practices. And she saw this completely other network that was more related to love and affiliative experience and reward. And, And so then, you know, she pulled him out and they had this conversation conversation about what were you doing and this isn't what what I expected to see and so you know he helped her understand nuanced difference between empathy and just feeling someone else's suffering and compassion which is more involved in the motivation to relieve that suffering and like warmth those kind of loving feelings towards the person. So I think that really set a trajectory in, in this field of understanding that difference. And that's driven a whole lot more research on compassion and development of compassion, um, interventions for burnout and things like that. So that's just one example of bringing the nuance from the contemplative tradition into the scientific understanding.
1: Yeah, showing the, explaining that difference between empathy and compassion, and starting that whole scientific inquiry into into compassion. Yeah, because you know they have this term compassion burnout, but it's really empathy burnout, right? Because it's the empathy yes. which is just feeling, 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 overwhelms yes. you. But compassion is this active, you know, wishing to take away people's pain. If you feel empowered through compassion, exactly. but you can feel overwhelmed through empathy. So, one last question for you. This is a um, think the world has a lot of problems right now.
0: You could say that.
1: <laughs> if you were granted a wish to solve a problem, one of the world's problems through, uh, through this dialogue between science and meditation, uh, what problem would that be for you?
0: I think it would be around this issue of disconnection. And that's a pretty broad term, right? You can think of that in a lot of different ways. But one of the main ways I think it's showing up right now, um, certainly in the U.S., but I know around the world too, is like uh, othering, right? This process of creating this um, idea of an other and then that can be used for all sorts of uh, political purposes and um, hatred and... um... Anyway, I, I think that understanding how those constructs are... Created in our minds, both the construct of self, which of course, Buddhism and contemplative traditions have a lot to say about being constructs and not so fixed as we feel that they are. And and then similarly, at the same time, as you construct this sense of self, you're automatically constructing kind of the sense of other by default. And so how we can come to understand those constructs more completely, and then how we can change, transform our self-concept to include more others and realize what's happening when we look at another person and we categorize them in that way and how that's just such a false it's what our minds naturally do is categorize but you can also see through that start to create a more shared humanity something along those lines feels pretty important right now
1: yeah it's great this shared sense of humanity and connection (laughs)
0: yeah also up to the level of um, the planet right so I think that othering, it's a little bit odd to use it in that term, but there's a disconnection too, I think, that we tend to have from the planet and the natural world, which is obviously a huge part of climate change denial and why we're not addressing the most major issue, I think, that faces us right now.
1: Yeah, this is obviously a a wish and a good wish. Just to um, take us out, are there any practical ways you know of to cultivate this better sense of connection (laughs) to counter othering? (laughs)
0: I think that um, I, I've been pretty intrigued by some of the analytical practices. Actually, we were talking about before we started recording, but a fairly standard type of compassion practice is you start, you know, developing loving feelings and compassion towards yourself or close loved ones, and then you kind of slowly move outward, you know, understanding that these other people, strangers, difficult people, and then all beings, you know, have the same basic wishes, desires to be safe and happy and not have suffering as you do. And that helps, I think, to a little more equalization. And then just, you know, repeated practice like that starts to, I think, really shift Our sense of who we are in relation to others. There's actually been really interesting work already in the field on meditation, shifting implicit bias and things like that. I think there's a lot of potential.
1: Very nice. Yes. So the loving kindness meditation. Ah, Well, that's a nice place to end. It's good. (laughs) It's not just a wish, but that we have a path (laughs) towards a more connected.
0: I mean, not to say that that will solve all of our problems, right? But it's one small thing (laughs) to do on an individual level, right? There's obviously structural and societal policy things that have to change too but it's both
1: well thank you so much i really appreciate you making the time for this interview i think you and i'm very excited for the dialogue coming up and for your part in it so thank you so much for agreeing
0: thank you scott i'm really looking forward to the dialogue in a few weeks